Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who are making a mark on marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Tom Goodwin is Head of Innovation at Zenith, where he works with some of the world's biggest brands to help them determine, no small task, the future of advertising, business and digital transformation. In addition to the day job, he's also found on social media asking questions and offering answers to some of the biggest issues in marketing with the attention of hundreds of thousands, prompting praise, pause for thought and irritation in equal measure. Such daily discourse led him to be named number one marketing voice on LinkedIn for 2017. In addition to writing articles for some of the world's most respected business titles, Marketing Week included, he's also an author with his book Digital Darwinism, Survival of the Fittest in the Age of Business Disruption, published earlier this year. Despite his undoubted pull on social media, he says of himself, nobody's following me, I'm not leading anyone or being a guru. I'm an irritating background element that sparks things. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me. Picking up on that quote, <laughs> not the bit about irritation. Okay. I'll let the listeners perhaps be yes. the judge of that by the time we've finished. Why do you care so much about sparking things? What does that mean? I think we're just quite complacent. I don't want to sound too rude, but as an industry, we pride ourselves on working in a creative industry. And we routinely mock companies that did not see change coming or were complacent. And I just don't really see that much excitement or energy or provocation in the industry. So it sounds quite worthy, and I'm not a particularly worthy person, but it just struck me that we could probably do a bit more and we could probably be a bit more interesting and we could probably get more excited about these new tools that we get. So I did, it, it started from a place of frustration. Like, I'm not a natural-born writer. I didn't do particularly well at English at school. But I think when you get really irritated by things and really passionate about things and when you are quite optimistic but disappointed about the current reality, it's just kind of driven me to get an industry or a part of this industry talking. And that's mainly why I write. It sounds like you're almost on a crusade. <laughs> I mean, there's an element of it where I just really care. Like, I, I genuinely look around at the modern internet and look around at many advertising experiences um, and I compare that with an industry that I entered in 2001 that seemed full of enthusiasm and seemed full of pride and seemed full of big characters and advertising that people would be extremely proud of. And it does sort of sadden me somewhat. So it's not like some kind of religious endeavour where I want to lead us to the Holy Land. But at the same time, I think collectively we can get a lot more ambitious. We can get a lot more excited about what's possible. Someone's got to do that. And I think I'm in quite an unusual position in that I'm sort of surprisingly old and surprisingly young and surprisingly irritating and surprisingly happy to take risks. And I think somehow a unique combination of those things allows me the chance to have a microphone and enough experience of the world to know that I'm not saying completely stupid things, but enough youth to have been brought up in the modern age and an age of social media and the internet. So I think there's an unusual combination of things that I'm quite lucky to have. Uh, and it's not like it's my duty to start this stuff, but at the same time, no one else seems to be, so I might as well do it. And you've talked before about group thinking and consensus thinking. Yeah. Is that particularly prevalent in marketing, would you say? I, I think incredibly so, and ever more so. Like, I trained as a structured engineer. I've got a master's in, in structured engineering, so I'm not an idiot when it comes to numbers and data. 
But I'm absolutely terrified by the degree to which we seem to be completely spineless in how we make decisions. Someone said to me the other day that they thought that advertising was in the business of plausible deniability. So how can we make decisions that we can back up with as much data as possible in a way that no one can point the blame at us? And I think that's a bit unfair. But increasingly, I see clients that I hear of and that uh, maybe I work with uh, spending more time on mitigating what could go wrong, spending more time on merchandising things retrospectively to look more successful than they really were, spending more time on showing a very rigorous, uncreative logical processes being followed so that if anything does go wrong they can kind of hold their hands up and say well look the numbers told us this and I think that's completely wrong you know I think the great A&R people in record labels were not people who could justify things with spreadsheets they're just people that could feel stars in their bones um, the great kind of literary agents, I think, were just able to kind of read someone's body language and tell they had a great book in them. I'd just love to see us have more confidence in our conviction and just become more empathetic and more gut-driven. And the numbers are there when we need them to help us sell in things that are particularly scary, but they shouldn't be there to lead the way. They should be there to help us. Is this the result of just having, you know, billions of data points? Is this driving perhaps the lack of risk-taking or is it more fun- financial or perhaps even more more fundamental in regards to an existential crisis in marketing. (laughs) I think all of those things have come together at the same time. I think obviously it's great to work in an environment where we now have more data than ever. Obviously in 2001, when I was selling in ads to clients based on whether or not their kind of wife or their husband liked them. And, you know, obviously that wasn't the best way to make decisions. But we now have so much data and so little data literacy that it kills me. We have so many decisions that are based on risk aversion rather than maximization of what's possible. We have a kind of culture of short-termism, I think, where people are kind of trying to stay in a job and trying to make sure that they beat quarterly numbers reportings rather than kind of create a brand for the future. So I think between all of those different constructs and and the general pendulum swinging in favour of tech companies where we've become quite scientific in the way that we feel and look at the industry. I think that's all come together to create a bit of a perfect storm. And again, I don't want to seem like some kind of, you know, hippie-esque kind of character that just thinks that advertising is an art and that numbers don't matter and that sales are just this great thing that might happen at the end of the day. I don't think like that at all. I just think that our instincts should be well-attuned and we should be confident in the things that we feel in our gut and that instinct's not some sort of magical thing. It's actually kind of based on billions of data points that we consume as people that we don't necessarily process and realise is data. Going back to social media, you talk yeah. about likes and followers there. <laughs> I'm still on the fence as to whether or not it's you know something that's going to empower the world or whether or not it's a massively disruptive number of channels. The best way I've heard social described recently, I think she was specifically referring to Twitter, was by Kathleen Moran. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Not that she's going to be listening, but apologies in advance. <laughs> she said something along the lines of, it's like a group of slightly drunk people about 10 o'clock on a Friday night, <laughs> spoiling for a fight constantly. Yes. Which I always thought was a really good way of describing it. You're obviously very active on Twitter or on yeah. LinkedIn and other social media platforms. What's your take on whether or not it's a good thing? or perhaps a destructive force, as I've just perhaps said. For society or for brands? Well, let's start with society. Let's, <laughs> let, let's get broader and more macro. Uh, let's, let's talk about oh society. I mean, do you remember that AOL campaign from about 2003 that was like, the internet, is it a good thing? I 
don't. Oh, it was amazing. It was a I very, it was a very early video campaign, and I'd urge all listeners to to check it out. It was basically narrated with two different ver- versions of a video: one saying all the amazing things about the internet and all the you know, enlightenment and education it will bring and how people won't be ignorant anymore. And then there was another one where they talked about sort of cyberbullying and pornography and stuff like that. And I think we may just have to accept that there are technologies and changes to the world that are so profound that they have huge implications that are both positive and negative. And it's kind of impossible to sort of say, you know, in summary, this is good or in summary, this is bad. I think what is more helpful to think about is how can we try and reduce some of the elements that are worrying? How can we try and change some of our behaviours which are completely stupid? And how can we just have a slightly more sort of progressive conversation? Like, how can we sort of destroy complete ignorance? How can we stop sort of ganging up on each other? So I don't think it's remotely easy, but I think it's it's a good thing to try and talk about. And I think it's a really important problem to solve. I mean, so many of the good things that have happened to me in my life, if I'm honest, have come through the power of Twitter. I learned more through my Twitter feed in a month, probably, than I did in my entire university education. To know that you're able to hear ideas from great people, to have conversations that are sometimes quite intelligent about issues of today, like, it's an incredible tool. And often people who are most critical about these platforms, I think, have just not done a particularly good job of curating their their kind of followers and stuff. I perhaps fall into that category. (laughs) A brief flick for you. (laughs) World saved on one hand with your... When I first started at Mark, week years ago now yeah we used to talk about social a lot as if it was this esoteric area and yeah. brands needed to be on there but they didn't really know what to do i mean how would you assess how brands are using it whether or not yeah. it's the place for them i mean i've got quite a lot to say here really i mean one is social isn't a particularly helpful term like i don't know when networks become social and when they're not social like facebook is definitely a social media youtube kind of is like twitch sort of is but it's a bit different snapchat definitely is like venmo well i guess that is too you know to some extent something like uber is a social network the way that some people use it So it's not a very helpful description. I also think we have to be careful about giving simplistic, catch-all answers to things like, should brands use it? Because every brand has completely different challenges. They have a completely different brand positioning. They have a totally different audience. I think what I would recommend to people is, one, that they don't go into this thinking, I need to do this, how do I do it? That instead they look at all the available tactics and tools and channels and they decide actively that they should use social properly. And then two, they need to think about what the kind of role is. I actually think that social media is spectacularly good customer service. get incredible customer service from American Airlines and Delta Airlines through it. Um, It's very good at new news. So if you're a band and you want to announce your new tour dates, it's incredible. I just think that because people think of it as being free media, people just try and chuck as much crap onto it as possible. And then every time they get a share or a like, you get the feeling that everyone in the office kind of lets out a little cheer. And therefore you end up with these kind of brands becoming publishers, promoting content which has got nothing to do with their brand And then they all think of it as success. I often think that social media feels like quite a small world, so that if McDonald's and KFC have a fight on Twitter, about 3,000 people who work in social media think it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened. Whereas anyone that lives in, you know, the entire universe that doesn't work in social media really will never hear about it and couldn't give a crap about it. Does this speak to a wider disconnect that those in the marketing community have, you know, the perception (laughs) reality yeah. You are not your customer. You yeah. are not represented in any way. Yeah. Your customers are not obsessing yeah. over 
the same things we, as you we are. We spend far too little time in the normal world. You know, I think, you know, when people from advertising in London go out to Staines to meet a client, you know, people kind of moan about it as if somehow it's like the distant edge of the planet. Our job mainly is to kind of represent the consumer in all the decisions that companies make. That's the clear value that we have. And we need to spend time in kind of rural parts of India and see how people are using smartphones. Like the, the value that we really have is being trusted advisors to clients and telling them what the truth is. And the reality is that most people don't think the way that we think. Um, I remember years ago doing a campaign for a creative agency and we had to do Vox Pops and ask people on the street what their favourite ad was. And probably 19 out of 20 people said the Citroen ad where a car sort of turns into a transformer. And we were horrified. Like, we were just like, we keep on meeting idiots. Where are these people coming from? Why so, by the way? Why was that so horrific? It was a really sort of cheesy ad where just this Citroen just sort of started dancing to music. And in, in, you know, when you've grown up in a creative agency, it was just a bit like DFS adverts or, okay. or the adverts with Howard for the Halifax. It was just like deeply populist in a way that made us feel quite uncomfortable. And we kept on just thinking that these people were wrong and they weren't paying enough attention. And it only sort of dawned on us about three months into this project that actually our opinions were kind of irrelevant because if people like it and they remember it, then the work is done. We've just published a poll of consumers for our 40th anniversary issue. And I was expecting different results. So we polled people on adverts from each of the decades yeah. that we'd been around for. Yeah. And I was it was quite revealing. I was quite surprised, thinking there was an obvious contender for the 80s. And it turned out to be Yellow Pages. <laughs> yeah. Still a residual yeah, yeah. affection for J. the Yellow Harley. Pages. Yeah. Amazing. Very transformative as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and likewise, for the most recent decade, it was the Aldi campaign, the you know Like Brands yeah. campaign, which clearly cut through in yeah. a way perhaps that... I wonder if we'd have done the same poll amongst representatives, yeah. sample of marketers, whether or not that would have come out. Sadly, I don't highly. think it would have done. I mean, I think we're just quite pretentious in how we think. And we um, we kind of examine ads rather than have them on in the background while we do normal things like other people do. Uh, and actually cut through way often is about a nice jingle or a storyline that people can adhere to. The reality is that most people, when they shop for shampoo, are not like judging brand purpose against brand purpose they're kind of looking at something that looks nice on the shelf that they vaguely kind of recognize that you know sort of smells quite nice and is probably on offer i'll just leave it lingering out there <laughs> about marketers being pretentious <laughs> moving on <laughs> moving back i that mentioned <laughs> marketing week meets sponsored by salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Sorry. <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning what? that you're now an author. Congratulations oh, on yeah. that. Thank you very much. You've written a book, Digital Darwinism. Yeah. For anybody out there who hasn't read it, yeah. <laughs> how, would you, how would you elevate a pitch it to them? Uh, I need to get better at this answer, but basically, I know what would your company look like if you built it today? You know, we, we live in this age where there are large legacy companies that had fantastic assets and ownership of crate of things which were unbelievably helpful for them for absolutely centuries. And then increasingly those things that were assets become liabilities. So whether it's having staff, whether it's having expertise in the old paradigm, whether it's having sort of large revenue figures which are quite hard to grow, increasingly the things that were helpful are now unhelpful. And then you have these kind of thrusting, young, annoying startups that come from nowhere to kind of eat their lunch 
And it's kind of looking and advising companies with how they can deal with that. To what degree should they act in denial? To what degree should they manage the decline? To what degree should they set up new units that become the future? Um, so it's kind of rooted in new technology and how that changes expectations and how that changes customer behaviors and how that changes what's possible. But it's kind of hopefully less about technology and more about um, sort of business strategy and how they can sort of really employ these new technologies at the heart. I mean, change and the pace of change is obviously yeah. an underlying theme yes. throughout the book. Yeah. Do you think, though, people are misreading this sense change and disruption is coming particularly in marketing and, and using diligence in regards to research and insight, i.e. Yeah. being all about product and not about customer? Well, again, I think every company will find themselves in a different position. So if you are a bread-making company, the reality is that your business today is not massively affected by all this technology. You know, the, the future of Hovis is not going to be ruined by Uber for bread. Uh, we're not going to be 3D printing our own bread anytime soon. And then there are other industries like the car industry that actually probably is underestimating the amount of change that will happen to their industry in the next 10 years. So I think companies need to figure out the degree to which they need to worry and the degree to which they need to make radical existential change. I think probably in marketing, because we're so keen to showcase to the world that we get change, because we love going to conferences where people go around talking about drones and blockchain and the Internet of Things, because we're so close to all of this hype, um, I think what we've generally done is we keep on wanting to do new things to kind of almost virtue signal to the rest of the market or for pitches that we have understood this new stuff. And we've done so to the detriment of things that continue to work and will always work. Like the actual fundamentals of marketing haven't really changed in the last 200 years. The way that as human beings we make changes and decisions have not really changed that much in the last 200 years. So I think it's great that we have this new stuff that can augment what we've done before. But this idea that TV is dead or that print ads don't work, I think is, is kind of largely nonsense. I think what we need to do instead is where we have a new technology, like use it much more imaginatively and creatively. So let's not just take TV ads that are 30 seconds long, kind of lop off the last 10 seconds and stick on YouTube and be proud of what you've done. Instead, look at what online video delivery makes possible. So how can we tell stories sequentially? How can we provide people with much shorter forms of advertising? How can we exploit the fact that the skip button means that the first six seconds might be free? How can we turn all ads into shoppable interfaces where we can get people to buy products without thinking about it? How can we introduce loyalty? How can we use behavioral economics and sort of new technology together to create new forms of advertising? There's there's lots that can be done. And instead, we tend to do quite stupid things like do chatbots or, you know, a social campaign on Snapchat because it's cool. Another thing that struck me about what you wrote in your book was when you talked about paradigm shifts. Yeah. And the success of those that have succeeded, uh, Amazon, Facebook, even Donald Trump, I think you mentioned, <laughs> without any having any experience of what they yeah. what they ended up doing yeah you posed the question whether the, they have succeeded despite having a lack of experience or because of it i yeah. just wondered whether, which side you fall back i'm not going to go through each of those examples independently I think, but i think generally um like often we know too much and often we have too many assumptions about what is and what's not going to work like famously you know news providers have said that people won't pay for content and it actually turns out that as long as you make great stuff people will pay for content so we, we tend to sort of refine as industries to sort of optimal solutions based on assumptions that we all make. And we tend to find ourselves making ever smaller, ever more kind of um, incremental improvements upon that. 
and then it kind of takes someone that's not in that world to just see things completely different and to challenge all of those conventions and to do something radically different. And, you know, I like to think of Dyson. You know, I'm sure there was no one at Hoover at the time that the Dyson came out saying, hey, we need to charge £400 for vacuum cleaner and people really go for this. Because everyone knew that no one cared about vacuum cleaners. They were all the same. You know, innocent. There was no kind of AC Nielsen data to show that there was a large section of the population that wanted to drink a smoothie. Like, it didn't exist. So data can kind of blind us in that it doesn't it doesn't show what isn't yet possible. When you come from a different angle, when you challenge those conventions, where you push people harder, where you kind of just dream a little bit bigger, I think those are the kind of existential changes that are making a really profound difference to the consumer landscape, and those are the changes that people should be most threatened by. What people tend to do is they, they fit these new things into the old paradigm. So for a long time, I spoke to retailers that didn't care about Amazon because they were like, oh, but that's an online retailer. Like They like to think of them as being completely different. I'm sure lots of people at TV stations are still not really aware of the fact that Netflix is an existential threat to their business because they're thinking, oh, but they're a streaming company. We need to just think in terms of like the roles that these companies have in people's lives. So if you're a bank, you know, what, how can you expand the role that you have? If you're a car company, how can you become about mobility rather than selling people vehicles? And is it an issue particularly in, I don't know how we best describe it, traditional businesses, legacy businesses? Is it just because this is the way that we've done things, this is how we're operationally set up to do these things, therefore it's difficult to change? Or is it more of a psychological thing that's ingrained in a company culture? I think both of those two things together. I think companies have thrived for years because they're extremely good at perfecting existing processes. So if you are a chocolate manufacturing company, you're very, very good at buying sugar and flour and buying leases on large pieces of machinery. You're very good at merchandising and marketing chocolate. It's extremely hard to sort of take all of that existing infrastructure and that muscle memory and get people to sort of think completely differently about are they in the happiness business and what does that look like and maybe they should sell music or something. So I think we need to be mindful of the fact that most people and most departments and most structures are very good at perfection within that. So how can you get those companies to sort of think differently? Do they have to kind of buy that in externally? And if that's the case, how do they kind of operationalize that? Do they just set up other units that are almost like hedge funds where they just kind of invest in different businesses that they can't, can't realistically run themselves? Again, like I think every company needs to have a different approach. But I, I don't like to be too mean about these fact that these companies are not very good at it because so far in life they haven't had to be. Like if you're coffee company like Nestle, you haven't had to create something like Blue Bottle Coffee because your future's been fine. Um, If you have been the Yellow Pages, you've been great at negotiating paper contracts and printing off tens of millions of catalogues because that's what business you're in. It's not really fair to be surprised that they didn't understand the internet. But increasingly, companies need to think differently because these threats will come from different angles that they're not prepared for. Is there an example of a a well-established business that you've seen adapts and not completely wholesale change but adapt through this iterative change that you talk about yeah the um there are companies that have done it fairly well so you could look at how ibm went from selling sort of consumer electrical consumer computing to consultancy you can look at how general electric went from selling jet engines to selling contracts on servicing jet engines But generally speaking, there aren't particularly good ones. I mean, again, these companies have done quite a good job of hedging their bets. And Nestle, when they bought Ben & Jerry's or um, Hagen-Dazs, you know, they kind of did quite a good job of buying an innovation. The best one by far 
And the only example of what I referred to in the book is self-disruption. And self-disruption is not where you kind of innovate to do more. It's when you actively do something which is detrimental to your bottom line for a while with the hope of recreating what the future of your company will be. So it's a bit like pruning a, a kind of a rose back and everyone thinks it's dead for a few years and then it sort of grows back bigger than ever. The only company that's done that is Netflix. You know, they realised that they could no longer... They, they, they couldn't see in 10 years' time that they were going to be in the business of posting DVDs to people. They realised they'd need to become a streaming entertainment company and in that environment they realised that they might as well create and produce the content themselves. So they, you know, they, they went through a massive period where everyone thought they were completely nuts. They lost kind of, I think, a third or two-thirds of their share price. Um, and now they are the company that they are today because of the incredibly difficult decisions they took back then. One of the conclusions uh, in your book is about the need to focus on people. Yeah. Questioning the readiness of brands to spend massive millions on uh, marketing campaigns, communication yeah. campaigns and perhaps not on service training. I just wondered if, in terms of the future, whether or not brands, the success of brands will be more about what they do rather than what they say, therefore. I think so. I mean, it's quite easy, I think, to be a bit naive and think that if you make great jelly, that the world's going to talk about how great your jelly is and you don't need to create a big jelly brand or, you know, that coffee will just be how... Uh, people rationally think how quality, how high quality the coffee will be. There are there are some categories where you always need to build a brand through advertising, and where actually the the sort of tools and tactics that we've used for years are going to be quite similar. There are other, especially things which are more experiential and less kind of um, tangible, where actually your experience of the brand is everything. It doesn't matter how much a hotel company might tell me through advertising that they have great customer service. The only thing I really care about is the customer service that I receive. So whether it's ride-sharing apps or hotels or car rental companies or restaurants or airlines um, or, you know, increasingly things like retailers as well um, or insurance companies or banks, like increasingly the only thing that really matters is the kind of products stroke experiences that you create and how sort of seamless and frictionless and impressive generally they are. Because one of the sort of powers of social media is that we do tend to share our experiences. We're particularly likely to share bad experiences we have. But I think, you know, you can look at the success of people like Tesla or Uber or Airbnb or Facebook. You know, these are not companies that spent meaningfully in advertising for the first five or ten years of their life. And they just created the success they have by being fantastic products and experiences. Warming to the positive. <laughs> I just wondered if I could get your thought on what the biggest marketing achievement that you've seen, the biggest marketing-led transformation. I think Virgin is a very interesting brand. Which bit? Um, well, I was going to say, I think as a parent company, I think they're interesting. Even though I live in the US, I'm still able to see the degree to which they're cocking up trains. So and doing dubious things with the NHS. But until about two years ago, I was safe with this answer. I think the airline, I mean, it's obviously quite a sort of glamorous airline. I think the degree to which they were able to establish underserved markets, uh, not through data, but just through anecdotes and through a sense of instinct about where they could belong. I think the degree to which they've created a brand which is quite elastic, and then the way that they just kind of create sort of moments of delight. I mean, I fly a lot, and every time I fly Virgin Atlantic, there are just little things that they do that doesn't cost that much that kind of leave you with a really great taste in your mouth. What's the biggest change? You've talked about how long you've been in the industry. We've talked about it as we've been going along, but is there one thing that you thought 
what you could pinpoint that wasn't there when you began in that's very prevalent now? I think defensiveness. Uh, It's hard for me to know objectively because my career has changed in many different dimensions at the same time where I moved to the US and I moved from creative agencies to media agencies um, and time has changed. So it's hard to know which which of those variables to attribute this to. But I felt like um, I felt pretty confident in meetings with clients. Like I felt like we were there paid to have opinions that we could say things that were quite controversial, that people actively listened to us. And it seems that increasingly we are in the business of serving clients and not being too difficult and undertaking orders that they give to us. And I think that's a huge concern because I think in these times where things are changing quite fast, where we do have all this new technology we can use, where people do need quite a lot of help, where there is quite a lot of ambiguity about what the right way is, I actually think that it's imperative that we're able to say things that are challenging and to start quite informed uh, debates about this stuff and together to create a journey through this interesting and turbulent and wonderful and abundant era. And that involves us having balls to say quite difficult things and ask questions which are weird and to sort of challenge a lot of convention. Um, And I miss the fact that now when I do that, people think I'm being a pain rather than just doing my job. Final question. Yeah. When you sit down, reflect on your career in however many years' time, what would be the legacy that you wanted to leave? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I did that. (laughs) That was my contribution to Uh... the Marcom's world. You know what, that's something I struggle with at the moment, because not that this is a therapy session, but I struggle with the degree to which I can make stuff. Like, I'm lucky I get to sort of fly around the world all fancy, and I speak at stages, and I write pieces, and everyone's like, oh, Tom, you know, you're quite interesting, and you think quite differently. I want to make stuff. You know, like we as an industry, we've not created any new form of advertising since the 1950s. Um, it takes an incredibly long time to do something t- in a, that's a tiny amount different to things that have been done before. Um, I want to just sort of get wild and funky and meet some clients that genuinely want to make a real difference and be incredibly proud of something they did that was new and innovative in a meaningful and effective way. So I'd like to think that if, if I do have some influence and some... Uh, potential to bring change. It's going to be done through sort of showing people the way rather than just being an annoying guy that speaks at the conferences. Be wild, be funky and not annoying. That's not a bad <laughs> legacy to leave. I'd settle with that. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Tom Goodwin. Now, some bonus material. We visited Salesforce's world tour in London last month and spoke with senior marketers from Rituals, Hotels.com and rated people about personalization, customer experience and changing expectations. Jamie Merrick, Director of Strategy and Insights for Salesforce Retail, EMEA. I think the important thing that consumers want from you know, retail brands these days is they want the consistency. I think that's critical to it. It's the ability to, whether they're shopping online or in-store, or if they're even going to a service centre, you know, calling a service centre, is are they going to get a similar experience, if not quite the same, but similar, that reflects why they're there in the first place. I think that's one of the main points of it all. In the world of data and consumers creating a lot of data, they understand that retailers have access to this data and in return for access to that data they expect 
the retailers to do something good with it. So we know from our research that the vast majority of consumers expect to get a personalised experience from the retail brands that really understands where they are in their particular journey. Now, I don't want to make it sound too convoluted because sometimes the purchase is very simple, but, but a lot of the times there are multiple stopping points along the way until they decide to buy. I think it's impossible to obviously predict the future, but what I did hear from a big UK supermarket, their customer comes to their brand in probably three or four different times per week. So they're shopping in different ways per week. So one time it may be a convenience store on their way home, another time it may be the big shop on a Saturday, another time it may be a few items for a party, let's say, booked online. How does, how does that brand, how does that business know what the consumer is going to want? Well, the point is they need to be flexible. And I think flexibility is the key. So the old monolith way of setting up your business with loads of complicated integrations to various different systems, you know, that's, that's finished now, that's dead. You can't do that at scale. Being able to quickly, in an agile way, bring innovation into your platform, ongoing, to react to those demands is what's critical. And so, so flexibility, ability to be able to ride that wave is key. So I don't really want to predict the future because I've never been great at it. I've never won on the horses. But I think, as I say, that flexibility, the ability to react and provide new innovation back to consumers is what they really want. Martin van der Zee, Digital Director for Rituals. The products we sell are our best uh, experience live uh, in a store. That's simply the truth. And yet we want to be omnichannel and want to sell online. So it's very important to recognize that this is a challenge and this is not something you just do by putting it in a website and it will work. So you really have to understand that also for the customer this is challenging because there is the... Um, the smell, the feel, the, the substance is very important to our product. So how we do this is by creating layers of communication. First, selling actually the experience, selling the dream, selling the story of rituals. Then propose certain products in a, in a way. And the moment you find that interesting, uh, you can click on it and, and you enter into a funnel which is geared towards a particular product. But never make the mistake by starting too early with a very particular product because people don't know how to handle that. So we have always a layered marketing. We start with awareness campaigns, the higher funnel channels, display, social media, YouTube or video. Then if, if we see people engaging on those, like watching the video completely, uh, when we know they are somehow interested, then we come up with more product-oriented, which many times we start with the easy products, and easy products are products that everybody knows, like shower foam, and then we go to the more particular products, and the moment you like those, we make sure you have a customized, not a personalized, but a customized journey. Andrew Graydon, CMO for Rated People. So from a homeowner perspective, um, we look to create personalised journeys through identifying the, the job that they're looking to post with us. Now that may be a plumbing job or uh, ranging through to converting their loft. So for us, it's very important that the experience that we create is very much tailored to the job that they're posting at any one point in time. And the really clever thing that we do through, uh, through our platform is the machine learning. So when someone is posting a job, a plumbing job in this example, what we then do, our technology stack, then finds the right tradesperson 
that's going to best meet their needs. Now that's both in terms of the trade that they are is going to be most relevant for the job that's been posted, but also from a geographic perspective, the tradesperson that is closest to them. And so from a marketing perspective, that from a proposition that we can promote to the marketplace, we can talk about uh, the fact that if you post a plumbing job, the average length of time that you're going to get someone, a tradesperson, picking up that job is going to be of less than 10 minutes. So it's a fantastic proposition for us and a platform that has continued to evolve. The, the matchmaking technology is something that we feel sets us apart. The output from that is, is that we can promise to homeowners that they will get their job serviced in some cases within 10 minutes and they get access to I mentioned 6,000 plumbers there's 6,000 five-star rated plumbers so there is a speed and a quality proposition that we can promote to homeowners and from a tradesperson perspective giving them access to hundreds of thousands of homeowners and we cover every single postcode in the UK. Martin Allen, Senior Director Global Customer Marketing for Hotels.com. When a customer comes to our site, obviously they start to give us pieces of information about the type of hotel experience they're looking for. They'll give us the destination, often they'll give us the dates, perhaps some of the amenities and features of the hotels that they're interested in. For instance, it might be a family-friendly or with a pool or five-star. And we use those to try and personalise the search results and to make recommendations. And then if a customer returns to the site, then that's, I guess, when the personalisation really starts to kick in. So we would use cookies to identify them and returning, and then we would allow them to try and pick up the search from where they left off. Again, we would use recommendations to try and encourage them to shop different properties that we may believe meets the criteria that they they set out. And then my area, the CRM area, then starts to pick up in terms of then contacting those people after they've left the site. So we use email and push notifications as part of our abandoned shopper series. We target people with communications about the hotels or the destinations they looked at. We use recommendations to suggest alternative hotels or alternative destinations. And what what we're hoping to move towards is making those recommendations even smarter and not only making recommendations, but I think more importantly, the rationale for why we're making those recommendations to customers. We measure results or success in a number of different ways. I guess the the most obvious way is through engagement and traffic. But then, like all e-commerce companies, we are obsessed with conversion. Conversion is extremely important. And I suppose, ultimately, we're interested in the lifetime value of our customers. So a lot of our activity and our marketing is tested using MVT, multivariant testing. And we set up sometimes longitudinal studies that run over a period of days, weeks, or even months where we measure the cumulative effect of our activities. So an example would be with our CRM program, our marketing emails. We have a long-term holdout where we measure the incremental benefit that being part of our CRM program delivers. And I'm pleased to say it does deliver a decent double-digit incrementality for our customers. So we know that as a result of receiving our CRM communications, customers spend more with us. And we, we can show that not only do more customers book, but the customers who are booking book more as a result of our CRM communications, whether it's email or push notifications. 
You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by something else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen via marketingweek.com. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Thank you.